Welcome to CII Radio. I'm Luke Holloway, editor of The Journal. In this episode, I'll be talking to Kevin Smith. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking about whiplash reforms and what the insurance profession needs to know. We're joined by Kevin Smith, insurance partner at law firm DAC Beechcroft. To find out more about this podcast and for useful links, go to thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Here's our conversation with myself and Kevin. Hello, Kevin, and thank you so much for joining us today on CII Radio. Hi, Luke. Excellent. Very, very glad to, to have you with us. Um, now, we'll be discussing today um, what we've already said is, is quite a vast topic. And as I understand, it has been kind of ongoing for, for some time with, with some delays as well to it being implemented. But um, can you kind of give us some basic background around the whiplash claims process and, and why reforms were needed? Yeah, of course. And as you've said, some delays being experienced, um, a largely unforeseen pandemic at that time and Brexit thrown into the mix as well. But we're, we're getting there now, thankfully. It's an area really, and um, many of your listeners who operate in the space of dealing with low value injury claims, particularly road traffic accident claims, should be familiar with reform, really. Uh, the MOJ RTA portal was introduced in 2010 in an effort to streamline the handling of these um, low-value claims. That was extended in in 2013 to include fixed recoverable costs and qualified one-way cost shifting to create greater control over um, legal costs. There were further reforms in 2015 when uh, Medco was introduced, which saw greater independence in the preparation of of medical evidence in support of injuries as well. So a lot of activity already in recent years and obviously now to be followed by the whiplash reforms. And really, um, the logic for that was despite all of the changes that I've mentioned previously, data was put before the government setting out that even though the number of road traffic accidents was falling, the number of people claiming whiplash was rising. Whiplash was seen to carry an incentive to claim damages that were considered disproportionate to the level of injury sustained. And we've seen the word whiplash and the phrase compensation culture go hand in hand really throughout that period. So the data that was collected um, suggested that whiplash costs the insurance industry around £2 billion per year or £90 per policy. And naturally, what that was doing was pushing up the cost of premiums for consumers. So in 2015, the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, first announced that there would be a clampdown on whiplash claims. And the suggestion at that time was that there would be an end to compensation for minor injuries. The final view taken has been to avoid a complete ban on claiming compensation. However, change was needed to make it harder for people to claim compensation for exaggerated and fraudulent whiplash claims. So the intended result is that 
the costs of premiums should reduce, which is it's good news for everybody and will result in savings for a huge number of households. And so really, the majority of accidents on the roads of England and Wales as of Monday will be captured by these long-awaited reforms. Fantastic. And that's this Monday being the 31st of May, as we're recording. So these uh, reforms, as you say, after almost a decade of back and forth, are now actually kind of coming into effect and, and are hugely necessary. Exactly that. And thank you for pointing the date of the recording out to the benefit <laughs> of your listeners there. Um, and yeah, it is, it is an important point to note that it isn't accidents after that date. There was some misunderstanding in the industry. It is It does capture accidents on or after the 31st of May. Absolutely. And yeah, as you say, the, these reforms are, are definitely needed and for, for many factors, not least for the, the cost to, to, you know, normal customers in the insurance profession and, and what that means. Um, so that's kind of some background. And um, what are these changes that are being made um, on the 31st of May and, and how will they affect insurers and claims and also customers? Well, firstly, there's been an increase in the small claims track limit, previously £1,000 for general damages for personal injury primarily. And that's now £5,000 and uh, will capture a significant number of RTA claims and importantly limit the extent to which costs will be recoverable for those claims. Under the Civil Liability Act, pre-medical offers have been banned for whiplash claims to drive the right behaviours in the industry. It can be very tempting for insurers to buy off minor claims early, but the new process ensures medical evidence has to be obtained for whiplash to verify the claimant was indeed injured and a degree of severity. So that really protects claimants as it ensures they receive the appropriate level of compensation. And it also protects compensators against the risk of paying off false or exaggerated claims which aren't supported by medical evidence. Big change um, is the introduction of the OIC portal constructed by the MIB in conjunction with uh, the MOJ. And this enables claimants to manage their own claims unrepresented. And this is this is a big shift as part of these reforms. Claimants can have legal representation. However, those costs will in the main not be recoverable from the compensator. The Act has also introduced a tariff for the whiplash element of any claim for personal injury. And the compensation um, contained within that tariff is vastly reduced from what we're used to at present. A three-month whiplash injury, for example, fetches £240 under the tariff. You would be looking at in the region of £2,000 probably under common law uh, assessment as we're dealing with at present. With the introduction of this new process, there are now three ways in which an injury claim can be presented. So the new small claims protocol, the existing RTA protocol and personal injury protocols. And insurers really are going to need to be able to respond to cases submitted by each method, but importantly tackle claims which have been submitted via incorrect means. An example being um, a claim submitted in the existing RTA protocol through the portal, but actually an insurer considers that it has a value less than £5,000 and should have been uh, introduced via the small claims protocol. Now, these cases will need to be identified and challenged very early. 
this is important as um, there are stage costs which are applicable in the um, existing RTA protocol. And if insurers don't drop them out early enough and end up paying some of those costs over it, they're likely to encounter difficulty in recovering those payments if made in error. It comes down to training claims handlers in terms of the reforms, something insurers, as I say, should be familiar with given reforms over recent years. But in this case, really, that's not just in terms of the the new rules, but it's in dealing with a larger number of unrepresented claimants. It depends who you speak to, which end of the market, as to how many claimants will actually be unrepresented and when this goes live. But I think it's accepted by everybody that the, the number of unrepresented claimants will increase from that, which many insurers will be dealing with at the moment. The, the good thing is the OIC portal and the user guide for unrepresented claimants should really facilitate quite smooth engagement with unrepresented claimants and uh, enable them to pass the claims through in a streamlined way. So, as I've said, claimants can still have legal representation. However, those costs won't be recoverable. So, in order to secure representation, a, a claimant is likely to need to give away a percentage of the damages uh, in return for that service. An indication in the market at the moment is that that could be in the region of 30 uh, or 40%. So, in the context of vastly reduced compensation already by virtue of the tariff, again, a sizable chunk of that is then going to be given away to representation. And it's going to be really interesting to see the early data as to how many claimants are unrepresented and how many um, still choose to use representation despite giving away those damages. So in respect of the cost reductions as well, despite all of these cost reductions, the, um, the court issue fee and hearing fees, which will still apply, are not insignificant. And um, I think the combined um, value of those two fees at the top end of the, the value limit comes to just under £800. So insurers need to re- remain alive, really, to those costs and avoid allowing the wrong cases to go before the court in, in the same way that they do now. Yes, yeah, so it's certainly a big shift in the way these claims are handled and, and the legal processes as you've, as you've run through there and, and also the compensation amounts as well. Are there any other important details that insurers need to know at all? Yeah, I mean, the, the process has shifted fairly significantly. The most critical change um, is, is probably in respect of responding to the issue of liability. There's now a 30-day period in which a compensator has to respond with a liability decision. They can either deny liability in full, admit liability in full, admit liability in part, or admit fault but dispute causation for uh, injuries. The response must be supported by a version of events relevant documentation and a statement of truth all uploaded via the OIC portal. So the kind of evidence really that we see commonly at the moment, so dash cam footage, locus photographs, diagrams, OIC has the facility uh, for all of this to be uploaded on the portal um, and exchanged between the parties. So 
policyholders will need to be educated as to both the need to respond within that 30-day period and importantly the implications of signing a statement of truth that is something which would often only be introduced at a litigation stage and that has now been brought forward to the pre-issue stage for, for both claimants and defendants and it's important that people understand the gravity of signing a statement of truth so currently if a CNF is submitted under the RTA protocol and is not responded to, then the matter can drop from that process. But the, the issue of liability remains live. The crucial shift here is that in the small claims protocol, no response no longer sees a case drop from the process. What happens is, is there's deemed to be an admission of liability in default. Now, that's a fundamental change to the current process and one that insurers need to be mindful of right from the get-go. It's vital that they engage with customers and broker partners, given that the speed of reporting is so crucial. If that happens and uh, there is an admission in default, there isn't likely to be any easy mechanism for compensators to resile from that admission. And even if they are subsequently successful in that regard, they're likely to stand significant costs in reaching that point. On cases where liability is admitted in part, yeah, a percentage split must be included at that point by a compensator. And now this isn't a without prejudice offer as we see currently. Uh, this is a binding admission of say 50% and the compensator then disputing the remaining 50%. So again, early engagement with policyholders, broker partners is, is going to be key in making sure that insurers have got that relevant level of consent and authority from their customers. The tariff only covers whiplash element of the claim plus any minor uh, psychological injury. So there's this issue of secondary injuries, which will remain covered by common law. Um, this could be, you know, secondary injury to a wrist or, or an elbow alongside a whiplash injury. And really, a test case in the higher courts is necessary for a precedent in the industry. And until we reach that point, that is likely to be a source of much contention in the meantime. An important point um, for insurers around MID is that whichever insurer appears on MID will receive the claim. And this was um, drawn into the rules really to avoid a claimant being left in limbo whilst insurers are arguing who should pick the claim up. The default position is if, if an insurer is on mid, they will receive the claim and be expected to deal. So it's vital that those records are kept up to date. And this will be of um, particular note to any of your listeners who deal with motor trade policies or perhaps split policies where there's temporary cover for you know pizza deliveries in an evening and the like. Thankfully, there are already well-progressed discussions as to an industry MOU, which will assist in, in resolving disputes in this area, uh, which is a really good example, really, of, of uh, industry collaboration to ensure that the reforms deliver as they're intended. 
An important point for insurers as well is that effective claims management is not all, all down to the swiftness of engagement from policyholders. And insurers' claims functions themselves will need to respond to requests, uh, for example, for interim payments or payment of final damages as agreed or, or face applications in those areas in a similar way to they do now. And, and any of those applications lodged will incur further fee payments that will need to be picked up by insurers as well. So, it's a slick operation, both in terms of that initial 30-day period and making sure that interims and payments in general are picked up swiftly by the claims handlers. So, yeah, there's certainly a number of very important details there that insurers will definitely need to be aware of. Are there any exceptions to the new laws at all? The tariff itself applies to all whiplash claims as defined in the protocol without exception if you're inside a motor vehicle, not including a motorcycle. Um, However, there are some exceptions in terms of claimants who may submit claims via the new protocol. Vulnerable road users are excluded. That's classified as motorcyclists and their pillion or sidecar passengers, cyclists, pedestrians, horse riders, and uh, those in mobility scooters. Also excluded are protected parties, so those who lack legal capacity and children. Claims by or against personal representative of a deceased person are excluded, as are claims made where a claimant is an undischarged bankrupt. I've already touched on the increase to the small claims track limit. So, claims where the injuries are over 5,000 or the total value of the claim is over 10,000 will also escape the reforms. But it should be noted that credit hire or NVCs, as they're now known, is excluded from the global valuation when submitting via the portal. And that then is only then factored into the overall valuation should the matter not be resolved and need to go to court. Now, of course, claims may start in the process, but leave at a later stage as well. Uh, if there's an allegation of fraud, fundamental dishonesty, or where causation is still disputed, following consideration of medical evidence, they will all leave the process, as will claims that have been revalued during the life of um, existence in the portal, or where either party becomes protected during that period, or the matter is deemed too complex. Just on complexity, That isn't defined, but insurers should think very carefully about using that to drop a matter from the process and dropping claims from the process generally, really, as doing so will introduce the claim back into cost-bearing territory. So that's important commercial consideration for your listeners. Kevin, we we touched upon earlier that part of all this is removing the incentive for any false claims. Do these changes have fraud implications and, and have the reforms made it a lot more difficult for fraudsters? Overall, the reforms are a really positive step, but there is some concern among some compensators that it will be more difficult to identify and, and handle fraudulent claims post-reform. The slim down process and the 30-day limit for a response, as we've discussed, does create some challenges in dealing with fraud investigations. There's a risk that some compensators may look at the low-value claims now, as we've said, £240, and look to pay them off rather than looking for and defending fraudulent claims. And insurers need to be mindful of that kind of activity and how that in turn might really lead to an increase in fraudulent activity and be counterproductive in in that area. 
there's this often used phrase, isn't there, in the insurance industry of balloon squeeze effects. And it may be that organised fraudsters perhaps move away uh, from low value personal injury claims and into non-injury aspects of claims. But overall, as I say, it's, it's a positive step. And the important point really is that the reforms have made individual personal injury claims less lucrative, which really um, should act as a disincentive for fraudsters. The value of damages is lower. There are no costs for representation. What it does mean is that there may be scope for exaggeration of injury claims, obviously to get the um, value of the claim over the small claims track limit and back into cost-bearing territory. And um, it's those kind of behaviours that I've already touched upon earlier, which insurers will need to keep an eye on. As with the non-injury aspects, obviously, they can still yield income for fraudsters. So false or inflated vehicle damage claims or, or higher claims. An effort to curb fraud was introduced into the OIC portal in itself, which are really positive ID checks, uh, which are inbuilt and um, various key points of personal data that a claimant must enter so that their ID can be validated. And also, as we've said, the signing of a statement of truth really kind of focuses the mind of individuals who are submitting a claim as to the truthfulness of that statement. And as we know, the court can impose various measures if an individual is found to be in contempt in signing a statement that they don't have honest belief in its accuracy. Also welcomed is this new process, as we've said, in relation to causation. Compensator has the opportunity to admit fault but dispute causation, you know, where there are low speed concerns or other causation concerns. So the claimant will then obtain a medical report. A compensator has an opportunity to put their concerns to the expert for consideration when drafting the report. And, you know, you can request that the uh, medical expert considers the claimant's medical records, for example. So then on receipt of medical report and list of losses, compensator has the opportunity to change its mind and pay the claim and benefit from the, the cost uh, reductions in the portal process. Or it can continue to dispute causation, at which point the claimants will have to issue proceedings outside of the process if they want to pursue the claim. It sounds like there's um, certainly will change the, the way these cases and these claims are, are handled, Kevin. In your opinion, what are some of the key aspects of the reforms which will determine whether or not they're a success or not? My view is that there are two key areas which will give good indication as to the level of success of, of these reforms. Firstly, the OIC portal was designed specifically to be simple to use and encourage use by unrepresented claimants. So data demonstrating that unrepresented claimants are actively engaging with the process and receiving prompt access to justice has to be one of the key measures of success. And having seen the OIC portal, read through the guidance material available to unrepresented claimants, I believe that that is absolutely uh, achievable. Second is the reduced spend by insurers on whiplash claims. So the expected reductions in compensation, third-party costs and pursuit of minor or speculative claims should see significant savings in the industry. But of course, that's only half a success and uh, those savings need to achieve the stated aim of being passed on to consumers uh, through reduced premiums. Insurers have committed to that. And this will be analysed with findings placed before the government in 2024. And at that point, insurers um, will be held to account on that point. So those are really the two 
key measures, I believe, to assess the success of reforms. It sounds like a, an extremely thorough review that's taken place with many processes and laws being reformed. I mean, can we expect any further changes or reviews? And, and finally, would you say this is a positive thing overall for the insurance profession? So following the, the increase to the small claims track limit for road traffic accidents, um, the government have also now committed to increasing the small claims track limit to £1,500 for employers' liability and public liability claims from next year. But staying with the whiplash reforms, it's really this challenging situation of multiple injuries or, or tariff plus, as they're becoming called in the industry, and assessing uh, injuries and, and compensation based on both statutory and common law is a new area for insurers. It's a new area for lawyers and it's a new area for judges. There's no mathematical approach to assessing multiple injuries, but rather awards are made based on the combined effect of those injuries on the individual. A totting up approach of individual component parts is likely to present a larger figure than would be considered reasonable in the context of the injuries and more importantly completely at odds with the overall aim of the reform so there is a great deal of uncertainty on this point and um, the review if you like in terms of a test case is something that everybody in the industry is waiting for with bated breath however unfortunately that may take some time but beyond that, Civil Justice Council recently concluded that, that there is unlikely to be any further reform imminent. It was intended that there would be a review of credit hire. However, the latest reforms represent a positive step forward for credit hire claims with the information claimants need to enter onto the OIC portal and the standard directions which will be in place for the assessment of those claims, really helping to, uh, to streamline handling of those cases post-reform. In terms of whether or not this is a positive for the insurance profession, uh, my view is that it absolutely is, represents a positive and effective solution for both claimants and, and compensators alike, really. The reforms will enable genuine claimants who have suffered whiplash and other minor injuries to obtain compensation quickly and efficiently, whilst also ensuring that the amount payable by compensators is proportionate to the true extent of pain and suffering. And my view is really that that can only be considered a good thing by everybody involved in this industry. Excellent. Well, thank you, Kevin, for speaking to us today about this hugely interesting and, and very detailed subject. Obviously, it's very important that insurers and, and our listeners know about these, these changes. So thank you very much for explaining them all so clearly. Kevin Smith, thank you for joining us on CII Radio today. You're welcome, Luke. Pleasure. Absolutely. So and thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at CII Group. So until next time, thank you for listening to CII Radio.